This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Uh, Sidebar to go along with that song. Um, The Bible's taking us someplace. Does that come as good news? We're going someplace with this. Let me outline the journey for you. If I had a blackboard, I'd I'd draw it, but I'm going to draw it in the air because we use our imaginations, right? Okay, here's, here's where the journey starts. Genesis 1, Psalm 1, Job 1, okay? It starts here, and it, here's the line, right? <laughs> and it ends, you know, end of the psalm, Psalm 150, uh, Revelation, I never can remember the last chapter of Revelation, 22 or 23 or something? Anyway, 22? Okay. Um, Job 43. So here's the, here's the, here's the journey. We start here with um, uh, Torah obedience, what I call the equation. What's the, what's the equation? If you're, if you're obedient, I'll bless you. If you're disobedient, I'll discipline you. That's Torah. And that's a good thing. Don't ever let anyone let, you know, make you think that the Torah, that the law is a bad thing. God would not give us something that's bad. Right? He gives us good things. The law is a good thing. But where we miss out is, is thinking that the law is all there is. The law is where the journey starts. That's the point. See, my, da- my oldest daughter's 30, Katie. When she was little, I tell her, you know, you clean your room, I'll give you some M&Ms. If you don't clean your room, I'm going to whack you. <laughs> that is Torah. Right? That's the equation. But that's not all there is. That's where the journey begins. When, now when Katie comes to our house and brings my beautiful granddaughter, Ellie Ann, you know, what would it be like if I told my 30-year-old daughter, very elegant, tall, she's a dancer, beautiful. I can't believe she's mine. She's beautiful, right? What if I said, honey, go clean your room or daddy can spank? That would be sort of sick, wouldn't it? <laughs> Why would that be sick? It would be sick because our relationship is going someplace. It's like this, it's where the Bible's taking us. It's taking us from that, from Torah down to uh, intimacy with God. God is, God is uh, showing us that he's, well, he's a God of Hesed. He's showing us uh, how much he loves us. So it begins with a Torah obedience. That's Job 1. Job is a man of Torah obedience, right? He offers sacrifices for sins his children might have committed, right? And it's been working really well for him right? Until chapter two. And what God is showing us in Job and in the Psalms and in the Bible in general is not that the the, the law is wrong, but that it's just the beginning and that there's more to the equation. God is not the God of the equation. God is not the M&M man. And almost every page of the Bible, I think God is saying, how could you think that's all I am? I'm the person who whacks you when you're bad and gives you good stuff when you're good, right? He's calling us into this uh, well, it's marriage, right? In the end of, it's a marriage thing he's, he's calling us to, this intimacy. So, so you, you begin with Torah obedience, and on the, on the journey, what you have that teaches you this lesson is the wilderness. The great central section of this journey is wilderness. It's the central section of the book of Job, 
right? Job is sort of wandering in this wilderness where he, the, 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 the equation doesn't make sense anymore. He's been good, but he's suffering. That makes no sense. And what are most of the Psalms lamenting? Like Psalm 73. Most of the Psalms are lamenting, wait a minute, Psalm 73 is the best one. Uh, the righteous are suffering and the bad people are prospering. That's not how the equation works. And God uses this disconnect of our suffering to make us stop and say, well, maybe there's something else going on than, uh, than this. Maybe God is calling me to more. So we, we go through the wilderness, and then we come out the other side, and we have um, Job. You know, what happens? God shows up. Intimacy. That's where the Bible is taking us, to, to, to an intimacy and a knowledge of God that we really we can't we can't comprehend it. And Job says, you know, my, my ear had heard about you, but now my eyes see you. I mean, what, what is the, what's the miracle, miracle of the book of Job? The miracle of the book of Job is the movement of God. In chapter one, he's in heaven, and by the end of the book, he shows up with God. I mean, with, to be with Job. Same thing with the Psalms. The Psalms, Psalm one starts with Torah obedience. Psalm one is a Psalm that celebrates the law and the equation, and that's a good thing. But the, the, the closing section of the Psalter is all about intimacy with God. It's celebrating things, okay? And, uh, you know, Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is the same thing. By the end of uh, Revelation, uh, we're the bride and God, God, we're married, right? I mean, he's calling to this uh, relationship that he characterizes with so much intimacy. is really marriage. We're his bride. So anyway, um, that song and a lot of the discussions that I've been having with people uh, at breakfast, a couple of people asked me to you know, talk a little bit about lament and how it works. But lament is the language of the wilderness, the great central section where you're trying to understand why does it hurt, why do I have cancer, why did, my, you know, why did I, I lose this child, God, you know, the equation just doesn't make sense to me anymore, what did I do wrong? All you see the this is kind of a structure that helps you see. Well, no, God's taking you someplace, and you got to trust Him. But when you're in the in the wilderness, He's teaching you to trust Him. He's teaching you to worship Him. Let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness, right? Okay, so I'll stop there. I'm, that's one of my favorite ideas. But it, it fits into Jesus' life as well. Jesus, a lot of his his life is spent in the wilderness. That's where he kind of God does His thing. Uh, so anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's go back to a uh, good old Luke. Uh, are, are you seeing things that you hadn't seen before or are some pieces coming together for you or, um, uh, I'm, I'm not having a whole lot of discussions about Luke. We tend to be talking about other stuff when we get together, but let's, uh, let's, uh, we're, we're going to kind of kick it. We got to kick it into, into gear here because we've only got, uh, one, two, three, four, five sessions left. So we're going we're gonna to jump ahead to 1025. Uh, we're still going to do big blocks. But uh, we can't just do every single verse. I can't read that fast. <clears throat> uh, we're going to look at the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. But I thought I'd, I would read you a couple of rabbinic parables. Just they're interesting and they're, they're charming. Um. We're going to see in this next block of teaching, uh, Jesus is going to use a, a, a tool of Hillel. Hillel is um, credited with coming up with uh, what are known in Judaism as the seven interpretive principles, the, the Midoth, M-I-D-D-O-T-H. 
And one of those midoths is, um, well, it, it's called Kalva Homer, but it, it's, it's this, but then that. If this, then how much more that? Okay? And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, a principle that Jesus, I don't know, Jesus learned it from Hillel, or it, it, was, it was a commonly used practice. And, um, and so here's a, here's a, um, here's a parable that, that uses that. And once again, the, new, the newest idea is that the, the rabbis get parables from Jesus. Uh, the 90%, the old position is lot, very much like a rabbi, Jesus used parables. Uh, but there's a newer idea that's gaining some strength that maybe, uh, maybe Jesus was the sort of the, the big originator of parables and the rabbis got them from him which I like that idea. I really want that to be true. So here's Judah, uh, Judah the prince. This is the guy that, that codified the Mishnah. Unto what is the matter like? It is like a king who is judging his son. And the accuser, you know who that is? That's the devil. And the accuser was standing and indicting him when the tutor of the prince saw his pupil was being condemned. He thrust the accuser outside the court and put himself in his place in order to plead on his behalf. Even so, when Israel, was made, when Israel made the golden calf, Satan stood before God accusing him while Moses remained outside. What then did Moses do? He used questions. He arose and thrust Satan away and put himself in his place. Yeah. Doesn't have the same resonance as a parable of Jesus. Let me give you another one. I like this one. This is Rabbi Simeon. This is like a Gary Larson cartoon. I get this one. <laughs> it is like, so what's it like? Parabole, what's it like? It's like men sitting in a ship. One took a drill and began boring a hole beneath his seat. His fellow traveler said, What are you doing? He responded, what does it matter to you? It's my seat I'm boring underneath. Okay. Here's another one. Uh, a lot of the later parables are kind of like Aesop's fables. They have animals, talking animals in them. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't do talking animal parables. As far as I know, I can't think of one. But here's a talking animal parable. And this is from the Talmud. I don't know who, who's, who this comes from. Uh, unto what is the matter like? It's like a fox who was walking alongside a river and he saw fish going in swarms from one place to another, fleeing the fishermen. He said to them, uh, would you like to come on the dry land? Yeah. They said to him, if we're afraid in the element in which we live, how much more, there it is, Kalva Homer, how much more, if, if we're afraid here, how much more afraid are we going to be there? If you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more, God, see, that's, the, that's Hillel. So how much more in the element in which we would die? So it is with us if we go and neglect the Torah, which is our life. And uh, how much worse off shall we be? Okay, here's, here's one more. You tell me if this sounds familiar. This is one of the most well-known parables. <coughs> a king had a vineyard for which he engaged many laborers, one of whom was especially apt and skillful. What did the king do? He took this laborer from his work and walked through the vineyard with him. When the laborers came for their hire in the evening, 
the skillful laborer also appeared among them and received a full day's wages from the king. The other laborers were angry at this and said, we've toiled the whole day while this man has worked but two hours. Why does the king give him the full hire, even as to us? The king said to him, why are you angry? Through his skill, he has done more in two hours than you have all day. Now, the classic interpretation of this is that this is a parable that Jesus, you know, co-ops and turns into a parable of grace, right? What is it to you if I want to be generous with my money, right? The, the, the laborers that he hires at the various times during the day and the ones who work one hour, he pays as much as the ones who've worked all day. That's how Jesus tells a parable. That's the, that's the standard uh, interpretation. But the newer idea is, though, no, that, that basically Jesus took a parable about works and turned it into a parable of grace. But we now begin to think it's the other way around. Jesus first told this parable about the workers in the vineyard, and it was co-opted into uh, a story about, you know, you got to do more. you got to work harder, right? He did more in two hours than you did all day. So there's a, there's a couple little cute, interesting parables. So let's look at uh, a, a completely different class of parables, the, class, the, the, the parables of Jesus, which uh, you don't read them and go, huh? Um, I, I told you at the, at the introduction that Luke shows us parables working in a way that the other gospels don't. He tells us way more parables anyway, but he'll tell us, you know, this is the group of people and this is what happened after the parable. Uh, Matthew will list, you know, blocks of parables, but he won't necessarily tell us what the setting was and who the crowd was and what the effect of the parable was. Uh, And John didn't tell any parables at all. No parables in John. So this is a a wonderful example of, of Luke telling us the story, what happens, and then that Jesus tells a parable in response. In fact, there's four or five parables in this block where Luke does this. So thank you. Thank you, Luke. And this is a parable of Hesed. So uh, this is, I'm at 10.25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's a flawed question in the first place, right? Because it's not about what you do. Okay. What is written? Very rabbinic. What is written, he says to the scribe. Uh, How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second half of the Shema. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the first half. Second half, and love the Lord your God. So he basically quotes the Shema. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this. See, what do I do? Do this and you'll live. And, it, and they could have been done right there. You know, it had been going so well, right? But he's, the, the scribe is not going to leave it there. He's, remember, he's testing Jesus. He doesn't really want information, right? He's not asking for information. He wants to get Jesus in trouble. Uh, you've answered correctly. See, very congenial. But... He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay. So now, again, Jesus, this elegant mind, this elegant thinker that he is, he's going to compose a parable to, uh, to unpack all of this. Okay, so here, and notice, no introduction, no explanation. He just launches into it, which I think is, uh, is uh, compelling. In reply, Jesus said, 
a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And those of you who've been to Israel, you know, it's a steep downhill run from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of men of violence, not necessarily robbers, but very violent people. That's the Greek. They stripped him of his clothes, so now he's unidentifiable. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Okay. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Now, Jericho was called the city of priests because a lot of the priests lived in Jericho. Um, and then they would come up to Jerusalem to do their thing. So that, that fits into the, 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 the culture or this life situation. So this priest is going down the same room. He passed on the other side. Now we read that and we go, oh, what a horrible priest. The first hearers of this parable said, and? Right? Why, why shouldn't the priest have stopped? Why, why didn't he stop? Right, blood. He can be unclean. He, you know. So, uh, yeah. And the same thing happens again, just for effect. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so what? But a Samaritan. Talk just a little bit about the Samaritans. Uh, we think we know how much the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. We, we all, we've only scratched the surface. There was an unbelievable hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. You know, there was a prayer given every day at the temple. Let me read it to you. Uh, in the, uh, no, sorry, in the synagogue, there was a prayer offered every day that, that asked that the Samaritans might not take uh, place in eternal life. Right? They hated it. Uh, he who eats the bread of a, of a Samaritan, it is as if he'd eaten the, the flesh of a swine. Yeah, there was a, a great animosity between the, the, the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, they, they sort of did this tit-for-tat thing. Um, one year, right before Passover, uh, a group of Samaritans dug up some graves and got human bones. And they went into the temple and they threw these bones into the temple courtyard. And they couldn't celebrate Passover that year because the temple's unclean. Okay, you don't get in this kind of, the game, in kind of a game with the Jews, right? Do not do this because the next year, the Jews burnt their temple to the ground, right? Gerizim, they have a temple on Mount Gerizim. And you know, with the woman at the well, there's this whole discussion between Jerusalem, the temple there, and you know when it started, it started when they came back from the, uh, the, from the Babylonian exile. Um, the, when, well, when the Assyrians in, in 7, 722, when they destroyed Jerusalem, they, they took all of the sort of upper crust people and the, the Amha'arets, the people of the land were left. They stayed there. They didn't take all of them into exile. In fact, they didn't even take most of them. And so the, the, the people who go to Babylon, how, how, do they, how do you maintain Judaism? How do you maintain your, your people group? You maintain your people group by not intermarrying, right? In the ancient world, how do I just, why are there no Hittites and Perizzites and Ammonites? It's because I destroy you and I disperse you and you intermarry and you disappear, right? So the Jews were really holding on to this fact that we don't intermarry. Right, we're gonna just you know stay within our group, okay? So, what, but what happens with these Jews that are these kind of farmers that are left? Well, they intermarry with foreigners, so people of the land they're called. So they come back and and they start rebuilding. This is in uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah in first chapter of Ezra. I've got those. I've got the verse here, um, Ezra four in Ezra four. 
these people come to the, the returnees and they say, we want to help you, you know, build. We're Jews just like you are. And they go, no, you're not Jews like we are. And they refuse to let them help in the process of rebuilding. And so the schism forms. And they go to, to Mount Gerizim and they build their temple and they have their own Torah. They're still there. There's still a Samaritan group there. I have a friend who helps them harvest their grapes. Uh, and some people think their copy of the Torah may be older than the, the Jewish copy of the Torah, but that's a, that's a whole other debate. But suffice to say, there is a, a severe animosity between these two people. And at the end of this parable, the man won't even say the word Samaritan. Okay, they hate each other. So step back now. And, and also, by the way, in chapter 9, the Samaritans have just rejected Jesus, right? Remember, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. So in, in that context... Uh, what, what, how is this Lucan? Who gets it? The Samaritan gets it. Who doesn't get it? The priest and the Levite. So this radical turnaround is even in Jesus' parables. Okay, so let's back. That was a long sidebar. I, I, I apologize. So the, the priest walks by the man who's hurting. Obviously, he doesn't think he's his neighbor. The Levite walks by the man who's hurting. Obviously, he doesn't think he's his neighbor. And here comes a Samaritan, the last person in the world you would expect to do the right thing. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had hesed. Hesed, kindness, compassion. Okay? He, and, and hesed is always over the top. Hesed isn't just, you know, here, I'll bandage your wounds and then I'll leave. No, I'll bandage your wounds, I'll put you on my donkey, I'll take you to the hotel, I'll take care of you, I'll pay your bill, and I'm going to come back later and check on you. That's Hesed. You know, the prodigal son comes back, it's the ring and the shoes and the pig and the party. Right? Hesed is always over the top. Okay, so here's, he's, he's doing Hesed. He bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them, he put the man on his own donkey, he took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, look after me, said, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have been, you, you, you have had. Now, which of these three, here's the question that he engages, you heard those questions in the other parables, here's the question that he's going to engage him with. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had hesed, the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, then go and do. There's the answer to his original question. What do I do? What do you do to get eternal life? You show hesed. You show hesed. Why do you show hesed? Because God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. See, it all fits together. Uh, it all fits together. Okay, next scene. Uh, Jesus at the home of Mary and Martha. This is only in Luke. And at, for the first time I realized this this, this morning, this is, a, this is a situation where there are two people, but they're both women. One gets it and one doesn't get it, which is pretty cool. Because usually it's a man that doesn't get it. So men, we get a break on this one, you know. Um, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way now see that little phrase? This is a travel narrative. From 9 to 19 is sprinkled with as they walked through the town, as they were going along. They're always on the move, right? After the confession of Peter, he resolutely sets his face for Jerusalem. From 9 to 19, they're going to Jerusalem. 
So as they were on their way, as they were going through the village, as they went along, so there it is. So as they were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now the other gospels would tell us this is Bethany, but Luke is not interested where it is. That's kind of a new thing for me. She had her sister uh, called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, and that is a metaphorical way of saying she's studying with him. You sit at someone's feet. I mean, literally, she's sitting at his feet, but it also implies that he's teaching, and she's basically studying with him, with the other people. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Um, and, and again, let's not be anti-Martha. We need Marthas, but at this point, Martha kind of doesn't get it. And you hear the sort of the, the, the pathos in Jesus' voice. He says it, her name twice. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will be not, not be taken away from her. Jesus kind of, he, this is the first time he sort of stands up for Mary when she anoints him. You know, the, everyone gets mad because she wasted the, the ointment and it should have been used to feed the poor. And Jesus, again, he kind of stands up for, for Mary has this incredible intuition, this incredible heart, and she's all in. She's that kind of person. She's all in. Uh, she's not just going to pour the ointment. She's going to pour, she's going to dump the whole thing because that's her life. And, uh, and I think Jesus has a special place in his heart for for uh, Lazarus' uh, sister Mary. So, but not to be anti-Martha. We need Martha's. You show up at someone's house with 70 people, you don't want Mary taken care of her. You want Martha there, okay? So I've, I have women coming to me and say, well, I'm a Martha, and they're always kind of putting themselves down. Well, no, 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 no. We need Martha's. We need Martha's. We're all beating hot dogs if Mary was taking care of us. There's a bunch of Martha's in that room next door, and that's what you want, Okay. Uh, <coughs> 11.1. Same thing. We're going to have these situations where Jesus is teaching and there'll be a question and he'll tell a parable. We're going to have a whole series of those now. One day, uh, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. Remember in 6.33, it was like, you don't do like John's disciples and the Pharisees do. So it, that's kind of an interesting thing to me that there are people in the crowd that are constantly comparing the way Jesus does it and his disciples and how he teaches his disciples as compared to John and even the Pharisees and how they do it. So this is the second time that's come up. I think that's interesting. So John teaches his disciples to pray. So, you know, how do you teach your disciples to pray? And the Gospel of Luke, which is so much a gospel about prayer. This is the first time we actually get to hear Jesus pray. Now, we call this the Lord's Prayer. When, uh, when uh, Matthew gives us this, uh, it's in the context of the Sermon on, on the Mount and a long block of teaching. Uh, I think this is a different occasion. Uh, and Jesus just gives the first half of the Lord's Prayer. This is the short form, the one that nobody prays. So when we finally get to hear him pray, he prays a prayer that you can pray in one breath. So very short which is, I think, part of, part of his teaching on prayer is you pray, at least public prayers, you keep your prayers short. We know when he's by himself, he prays all night long, so that's kind of a long prayer. But, uh, so here is the short form. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. That's it. Um, that's Jesus. That's the pattern for prayer that Jesus gives. I've got an outline. Let me give you at least four points on Jesus' teaching on prayer, if I can read my note. First of all, he gives them a, pair, a prayer that has a pattern. Right? You, you learn the prayer and you repeat it, you know, like a rote prayer. That's okay. Uh, second, he's going to teach us a parable of prayer, and that parable is about being consistent and being, uh, uh, sometimes it's even shameless. You, you keep asking and you keep, you, know, you keep going after God. The third thing is he talks about that we should have a certainty when we pray that God is going to hear our prayers. When we pray, we pray with confidence that God is going to hear us. Where does that confidence come from? Because we understand the character of God. He's a father. He listens to us the way fathers listen to their needy children. So we can have great confidence that God is going to hear our prayer and, uh, and answer. And the, the final point is that uh, understanding that God is readier to answer our prayer than a human father is. He's even better at responding to us than, than, parent, than our, our, our parents are. So uh, God hears and God answers. Um, and I, just for the first, I just realized this for the first time. This lead us not into temptation. In Gethsemane, he tells the disciples, pray that you won't be tempted. So I just saw that. That's cool. Uh, so verse 5. Uh, then he said to them, here comes a parable. No introduction, no setup, parable. He just speaks in parables. He just thinks in stories and parables. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. He just prayed, give us this day our daily bread. So it's all tied together. Um, because a friend of mine is on a journey, has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. What is that? That is Jewish hospitality. There's a little picture of Jewish hospitality. I come to your house at midnight and knock on your door. You give me bread. Or I just might die. You let me into your house to spend the night or I could, you know, someone could kill me. The one, uh, then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are, are with me in bed. Kind of a family bed. We, ha we had that for a number of years. Like a bunch of puppies. Your children like a bunch of puppies sleeping around you. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's persistence and uh, the word, I don't, you probably, Bibles have different, uh, it can be translated shamelessness. This idea is you keep knocking. Okay? Because of his shamelessness, he will get up and give, uh, give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, and he's going to sum it up, ask, he's not explaining the parable, but, but he is, he is uh, capping it off. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now he's going to say the same thing in a different way. This is not a person who's being obscure with parables. right? He says the same thing different ways. So now he's going to adapt it a little bit and say the same thing again. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
How much more? There it is. Kovahamer. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit? That's what he's been talking about asking for all along. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit uh, to those who, who ask him? Okay? <coughs> Let's skip over to 1129. <coughs> the sign of Jonah. Even this statement that it opens with, as the crowds increase, I think the, the implication is as they're journeying, because they're going to Jerusalem for Passover, and there's, the big crowd isn't just Jesus' disciples. The big crowd is everybody going to Passover. You need to know this. The, the population of Jerusalem in first century is 50,000, basically. But during the three big feasts, uh, Passover, uh, Pentecost, and, and Tabernacles, it's 250,000. The city grows. That's why there are people sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane and they're sleeping in Bethany. Apparently, Jesus and the disciples sometimes stay in Bethany from 50,000 to 250,000. And sometimes we think of the triumphal entry as this big crowd, they're all there to see Jesus. No, Jesus and the disciples are this little group of people within this huge crowd that's coming into Jerusalem. Um, and so I think this is an impl- the implication is they're going towards Jerusalem and as they go, the crowds are increasing because more and more people are funneling into the road that's. Uh, that's, that's going to Jerusalem. Um, this is a wicked generation. It, why? Because it asks for a miraculous sign. To ask for a sign shows a precondition of disbelief. Right? It's kind of like Zechariah. How, how, how can I be sure of this? Give me a sign. Okay. But none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites... So also the Son of Man will be to his or to this generation, and later he explains what that means. If Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, Jesus will be in the the bowels of the earth for three days. So also the Son of Man uh, will be to this generation. Verse thirty-one: The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. He's just said, blessed are those who hear, um, uh, to listen uh, to Solomon's wisdom. But now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will, Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Now that sounds kind of an, uh, like an isolated sort of statement. Put that in the context of the journey to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden it pops. Right? Consider where he's going and what he's about to do. Very much like a prophet Jonah, he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to lament over the fact that Jerusalem doesn't get him, doesn't receive him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You kill the prophets. God sends you prophets and they kill you, which is just about to happen to him. So that's, that's the kind of thing. If you read that in isolation and you don't read it in, in context and you don't read big enough blocks of the Bible, you know, we read three or four. We need to read three or four chapters at a time, not three or four verses at a time. So we can see the flow and how this, uh, this is part of this big block. Nine to 19, he's going there. And as he's going, he's talking about Jonah. He's talking about how uh, the Ninevites... Uh, accepted Jonah. And by the way, Jonah is another big Hesed story. Uh, Jonah is mad at God because God's God of Hesed. It's, it's, it's almost humorous at the end of the book. I didn't tell him because I knew you were going to forgive him. Jonah says, I knew you were God of Hesed. 
He accuses God of being a God of grace and mercy. That's why they want to tell him. See, and are you, are you angry? God says, are you very angry? He's like totally messing with Jonah. Sends the worm to eat the gourd. The, the, you know, I love that. Are you angry? I'm angry enough to die. Oh. So you're mad about this vine, but all these people who are going to be destroyed. That doesn't, that doesn't bother you? You know, I love that story. Uh, 33, and I, again, I hadn't seen this. I mean, I, I constantly see new things. He's, he, this, he said this in 816. Uh, I'm looking at 1133 about no one lights a lamp. He says that twice. Do you know that? Did you re- realize that? I didn't know that. He says this twice in Luke. Uh, once again, this is the, not a person who's being obscure. Uh, this is a person who is, uh, who is, again, very eloquently and very elegantly telling stories and parables uh, that are designed to, to help people really understand what he's talking about, not just head knowledge. So here he is again. He says the same thing. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it'll be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so those who come in may see the light. That's, that's kind of the hallmark of all of his teaching. He's lifting this light up so everybody can see. Um, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But when they're bad, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then, this is wonderful paradox. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. Interesting, this whole business of having light in you is a preface to the, the, our next uh, second party with the Pharisees that does not go so well. Party one, there are three parties he goes to. Party one and party three are very congenial. We're going to look at all three of them. Party two does not go so well, and that's this one. So let's look at this one. But it's prefaced by this statement about seeing the light and being, uh, not having darkness in you. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. Okay, so there you go. So he went in and reclined at the table. So we have that in our head now, don't we? But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash his hands before the meal, was surprised. Now, this is a, a really interesting indication that this guy is a follower of Shammai. Because uh, the Shemites, let me just read my note. Uh, the rabbinic school of Shammai taught that the outside of the cup must be kept clean. They didn't really care about washing the inside. Okay? Hillel said the inside was supposed to be washed first. And Jesus sides with Hillel on this. So there's this whole other culture, uh, these two rabbinic schools that are fighting uh, that, uh, that's the background of this. And it's, I think it's a pretty good indication that this guy is a follower of Shammai, which means everybody else at the party is par- probably a follower of Shammai, which also explains why it goes sideways. Right? I'm convinced that meal one and meal three are uh, Hillel, a bunch of Hillelites, but again, I won't take a bullet for it. Um, so he's noticing that Jesus doesn't wash his hands. And how do they wash their hands? If you've ever seen them do it, they don't, it's not, you know, it's, they just pour water. You just kind of get your hands wet. It's ceremonial. It's not, it's, there's no real purpose for, you know, getting germs off. Then the Lord said to him, my note says that's the first time he's referred to as the Lord. Hmm. Then the Lord said to him, now then, You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup 
and the dish. Uh, inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. So he's aiming at the, at the Shemites. You foolish people, didn't the one who make the outside also make the inside? But give what is inside to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. That's a little bit sounds a little bit convoluted, but it's it's he, what he's saying is really simple. What is real being clean before God? What does that really represent? It's the kind of heart that gives stuff to the poor. It's the state of your heart. It's not whether you've poured water over your hands or poured water over the outside. That's a ceremony. Very anti-ceremonial is Jesus. He, he wants your heart to be in the right place. So, yeah, pray, 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 pray. But, yeah, ask for the Holy Spirit. That's what our heart should be hungering for. That's our, that's our value system. That's, that's, what we, that's what we want. So here comes the woes. And, uh, again, in Hebrew, it's oi. Oi ve, oi. Okay, so oi to you Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees. Because you, and these are all the things that are wrong with the Pharisees. So here's a list of what's wrong with the Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and love. What does God require of the old man but to do justice, love, hesed? So that's probably hesed. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So it's okay to, it's okay to give tithes. But don't think that that's where your righteousness comes from. Stop neglecting justice and love. And he means the poor. You're taking care of the poor. You're not doing that. Okay. Uh, Second one. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. So that's obviously another thing that's wrong with the Pharisees. And he he talks about this other places. They make their their robes wide, the bands on their robes wide, and their phylacteries. You know what phylacteries are? There's the little box. Uh, the Jude, uh, Deuteronomy says that you're sub, supposed to bind the law as a frontlet between your eyes. So you see Orthodox use the little box. That's a flectory. And they, you have them on, on your arm and on your head. And, and they're tied on with leather straps. Well, the Pharisees made the straps on their flectories really wide. And they wore them all the time. They didn't just wear them when they prayed. They wore them all the time. And every now and then you'll see an Orthodox Jew in Jerusalem who's, wearing, who's walking around with his flectories on. That means he's really... You know, he's uh, very observant. Um, Sidebar. Um, When Jesus talks about the three pillars of Judaism, uh, prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor, he supports all those things. Obviously, they're they're the right things to do. He changes. He makes one uh, uh, adaptation to, to all three things. Can you think of what it was? The one thing that he changed is you do all three in secret. That was an innovation. That, that was an innovation. So when you pray, don't stand like you just said. You don't stand on the corner, street corner. When you pray, where do you go? Inside, to the inner room. And in the ancient houses, the only room that had a door was the storeroom. So you could lock it up. So you go into the storeroom so you can shut the door so nobody knows you're praying. I was flying to Israel one time and I sat next to this Orthodox Jew. And he looks at me and goes, I'm fasting. I go, well, that's great. You know, Tell me about that. And again, he was, I don't think he was being self-righteous, but this idea of doing something in secret is not part of his observance. No, you do it so everybody knows, so they know that you're righteous. So Jesus, when, when, you, so when you pray, you do it in the inner room. When you give to the poor, you don't let your left hand know what your right hand doing, is, which is, as far as any, the scholars can tell, this is a completely original statement of Jesus. He came up with that image of not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And when you fast... What do you do? 
You wash your face. You don't tell people you're fasting. And all, why do you do it this way? This is all based on the confidence that God knows what you're doing, right? That's what he says. God who sees in secret will then reward you openly. So you do those things for God, to please God. You don't do them to be seen to be righteous. And that's what's wrong with the Pharisees. So you love the most important seats. Um, and I just realized this. At the third party, the third uh, Pharisaic party in chapter 14, that's what he's going to talk about is where do you sit when you go to the party. We'll look at that. Keep, you know, keep that in your mind. Uh, third woe. Uh, woe to you because you're like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. Um, as you're entering in Jerusalem, when you're coming down the hill from Bethany, there's, it's, it's there to this day, there's this huge graveyard. And when Passover happened, to make sure that people didn't step on these graves, they would whitewash them. This is, you know, imagine 200,000 people are coming in, packing this road, and what happens if you step on a grave? You're unclean, Right? You've got this complex process to become clean again. So they'd whitewash the graves so, uh, so you wouldn't step, step on them. And it's about the nastiest thing that he can think of. Uh, I mean, the, the worst kind of uncleanness is to touch a, a corpse. That's the number one bad thing. And it's almost like it's, it's the worst image that he, Jesus could draw up to say you're like, much better to be a brood of viper. I mean, I'll take that any day over being a, a tomb. I'm a, I'm a whitewashed tomb. So, but you're unmarked graves, uh, which men walk over without knowing it. So you, you associate yourself with a Pharisee and you become unclean. You didn't even know it. One of the experts of the law, so you got Pharisees and scribes. Scribe is a, is a lawyer, a legal expert. Uh, one of the experts of the law answered him, teacher, <coughs> when you say these things, you insult us also. So he, he should have kept his mouth shut because what's happened, Jesus is going to turn on him. And I think there's probably some emotionality to this. Teacher, you, don't you realize that you, you insult us too? Zip. You know, boom. He's going to, like I say, he's, he's going to point his, uh, what is it? He's going to point his, his brain. Oh, I can't think of it. There's a really good image. He's going to point his Bible brain at them and pull the trigger. That's the, yeah. He's going to point his Bible brain at them and pull the trigger. Jesus replied, and you experts of the law, oy vey, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger, remember that finger, will not lift one finger to help them. And what is he referring to, this business of you can't spit? The, the legal experts are the ones who say you can't spit on the Sabbath, can't blow out a candle on the Sabbath, uh, all of these minute fencing around the law that they do. That comes from these guys. The oral tradition that Jesus said are rules made by men, that's a burden on the people, that gets under his skin, and he does not like it. Um, woe to you because you build the tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Um, in that same area where the, all the Jewish graves are is the tomb of Zechariah, the so-called tomb of Zechariah. So you testify that you prove of what the fathers did. They kill the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, in his wisdom, God said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill, others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar 
in the sanctuary. You need to know that the, the spot in the altar, between the altar and the sanctuary is the most, next to the Holy of Holies, it's the most holy place in the temple complex. Okay? That's why Jesus describes the spot. So he was killed between the, uh, between the altar uh, and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Now he's going to sum up. Woe to you, experts of the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you've hindered those who were entering. Then Jesus left there. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. From now on, it's just going to be a series of trick questions. Right? They are not asking questions to get information. They're asking questions to trip him up. And what they do is they ask questions. He can't say yes and he can't say no. That's a trick question. Okay? Uh, do I give uh, taxes to Caesar? Do I, do I pay, should I pay taxes to Caesar? If he says yes, he's in trouble with the Jews. If he says no, he's in trouble with the Romans. Can't say anything. But he always outsmarts them, which is one of the really fun things. And then eventually he'll ask them a question that they can't answer, this contest of questions. Yeah, you do not get into that uh, with Jesus. Not, not a good idea. Not a good idea. Absolute lordship. All you do is fall down and worship him and say, I'm a sinful man or a woman. I'm not worthy. And then you're, then you're good. That's a good perspective. Okay, we have time for one more block. Um, see, we're, we're kind of doing blocks now. That's, that's how we have to do that. Um, uh, let's do the parable of the rich fool. This is twelve thirteen. Yeah, I hate to, I hate to skip, but we you know we have to do this. Um. No, actually, let's start at chat. Let's start at the first part of twelve because this is an important uh, list. Jesus is telling them what they should be afraid of and what they shouldn't be afraid of. So let's start at verse at twelve one, and we'll get it. We'll stop and watch this. Watch this, y'all. Redneck's famous last words. Watch this, y'all. <laughs> Meanwhile, while a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another. See, that's this big mass of people, not necessarily following Jesus, but going with Jesus to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In Mark, this happens in the boat. They have the same discussion in the boat. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear will be closed, uh, behind closed doors will be proclaimed on the housetops. And here comes this list. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid. He's continued. This is what you should be afraid of. This is what you shouldn't be afraid of. Okay. My, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that can do no more. Now, this is a man. What's the context? He, this is a man who's, who's, the context of his life is there are people who are gathering and plotting to kill his body. Right? This isn't just, a, he's not just saying this in Sunday school. Right? He's walking to Jerusalem where already people have decided they're going to kill him. That's all we can do with him is kill him. Can't, we can't shut him up. And everyone's following him. Okay? So in that context, he's saying, don't be afraid of people who can kill you. Because he's obviously not. Uh, but I will show you who you should fear. So this is what you should be afraid of. 
So don't be afraid of this, but be afraid of that. I'm telling you who you should be afraid of. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet one of them, uh, not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. So this, and here we go. Here's more. Uh, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will, uh-oh, will not be forgiven. Uh, moving, on, moving right along. When you're, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry. See, be afraid of this, don't be afraid of that. Worry about this, don't worry about that. Okay? So worry about uh, uh, blaspheme, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Do not worry about uh, how you will de- defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. I'm sure this will come back up at the question time. Okay, uh, we, uh, we need to stop. We didn't even get to do the parable of the rich fool, but we're trying to keep our time. We're being mindful of our time. So we need to stop and, and uh, brace ourselves for all the questions on the unpardonable sin that are, that are even now rising to the surface. Okay? Questions? Uh, yes? And what would the typical Jewish religious leader, how would they have felt that they, what would they have felt that they had to do to attain salvation? They were asking Jesus that question. But yeah. what would they have thought they would have had to have done? Yeah, even the word salvation is a little, it's not quite part of their parlance. I mean, they, they do talk about getting into the kingdom of heaven but you're, you're not really saved. Someone doesn't save you. You do good things and you sort of earn it. That's how religious leaders think. Uh, by my scrupulous observance of the Torah. Um, uh, now, now, sin is a part of it. This is interesting. Hillel, this is Hillel and Shammai. Okay, Shammai says when, when you stand before God, um, your sins are going to be considered. But if you have enough good works, God is going to set your sins aside. That's what uh, Shammai taught. Hillel was the first person to talk about God washing your sins away. No, no, Hillel said, no, no, that's not how it works. You stand before God. You give him your good works. He's still a Pharisee. You give him your good works, and then what does he do? He washes your sins away. That's that's sort of how they they think. Uh, Even today in Judaism, heaven and hell are kind of vague. Uh, There's not not one agreed upon uh, sort of position. I mean, even to say in Judaism is like saying, well, in Christianity, well, how many different flavors of Christianity are there? There are thousands. But uh, Judaism is pretty much the same way. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I find it uh, interesting when you were talking about uh, the rabbinic teaching method, if this, then how much more of that? Mm -hmm. If you think of what Paul says in Romans 5 with, you know, Adam, uh, yeah, Adam and Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And who's Paul? Pharisee who studied with Gamaliel, who's Gamaliel? Grandson of Hillel. So yeah, they, they use these, I, don't, I can't tell you what the other seven are, but the, the big one that I hear, hear the most about is, if this, then that. Yeah. Yeah. Ken. I was interested in your comment there in Luke eleven thirteen 13 about 
when he tells them to ask for the Holy Spirit, that kind of the assumption was that that's, the Holy Spirit is central to the thing of prayer. It's what you should be asking for. As Jewish, as Jewish men whom he's talking to, what would their, in that first century Judaism, what would their understanding have been about the Holy Spirit? When he said Holy Spirit, again, I think it's kind of vague. There, there's this idea of the Spirit of God, right? Hovers over the water at creation. So he's there right in the beginning of Genesis. Uh, the Spirit of God fills the temple. You know, they have an idea that God can manifest his presence as, you know, I don't know, this cloud or whatever. Uh, other than that, I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's a, a, another well-defined thing. See, when you, again, it's, you just, Judaism is a different, you, you've got to think differently. Um, when you read the Talmud, you would think, well, people say, well, the Talmud's a Bible commentary. Well, sort of, but also it's, it's listing of what everybody says about, and they disagree. And so I study all the different points of view. It's not like we do where, you know, I'll read John Stott, you know, and, and that's the right way to look at it. In Judaism, you don't really do that. They're really comfortable um, with opposing views. Uh, it's, it's really hard. Uh, I say it this way. Um, okay, sidebar, sorry. Big question. A working Greek vocabulary is 10,000 words. In order to read 90% of the New Testament, I have to have a 10,000-word vocabulary. A working Hebrew, Hebrew vocabulary is from two to 500 words. I, I was taught that it was 200, but I've since learned that it's more than that. But still, 500-word vocabulary. What does that mean? That means that it doesn't mean that Hebrew is inferior, which is some people think. Greek-thinking people think it's inferior, okay? <laughs> Uh, no, what it means is in Hebrew, you'll have a word like hesed that's really deep and that, and that means lots of things at one time. And what I've learned is that Jesus is comfortable using a word that means more than one thing. The example, when he's talking to Nicodemus and talks about the, the spirit, well, he, 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 he talks about the wind, he talks about the spirit, and he talks about one other thing, um, but it's one word that means three things. And you'd, I, I would always argue about which one he was meaning, because I think in Greek, and so do you. But a Jewish person doesn't think that way. They're real comfortable to have a word that means three things. Uh, the word for, uh, it's a Greek word, but it's still, it works the same way. The, the word for Holy Spirit, parakletos, right? Well, it means two or three different things. Uh, it means a counselor who comes aside. It mean, parakletos means to be called beside you. Kaleo, call, para, beside in, that, in the context, uh, it can mean a counselor, someone who's called alongside you to comfort you. So sometimes we translate it comforter. But it, it can also mean someone who stands beside you in court. And then it's counselor in the, in the sense of a lawyer. Okay. And I used to argue in that passage when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit in John, I'd argue about which one it means. And now I realize he means both things at the same time. Of course, it makes it really hard to translate because you have got this specific Greek word that it has to mean this one thing, but in Hebrew, you don't do that. So all that is to say, so, so we say, in Judaism, how do they feel about the Holy Spirit? Well, guess what? There's, all, there's this whole rainbow of different opinions about who the Holy Spirit is and how it works, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and they disagree. The, the, the Jews have a saying, if you have 10 rabbis in a room, you're going to have 11 opinions. So did I answer, did I even come close to answering your question? 
I figure if I throw enough words at it, I'll, I'll eventually. I've had some um, incredible, I'm over here. Okay. <laughs> um, insights that I think the Holy Spirit has given me in the story of Mary and Martha. In what? In the story of Mary and Martha. Uh-huh. Um, one of them is because of my background in teaching, I worked in a school where most of the students had behavior disorders. Mm. Uh, a lot of them had anger issues. Mm. So when I looked one time at the story of Mary and Martha, it suddenly, I kicked into the mode of, I am making a behavior chart of what was the trigger Uh that caused the problem for Martha and for the outburst. Interesting. So the thing that um, came to like a a huge aha to me was the part of the story that should have been there that wasn't. And that is Mary's response, a normal person's response to being attacked on their character publicly would be for have Mary to jump up and have attacked back mm-hmm. at Martha. And she chose to be completely quiet mm. and allowed Jesus to be in her defense. Mm. So there was that place where I realized that when others, uh, and I was also a pastor's wife, um, when I have people saying, you ought to be doing this or you ought to be doing that, why aren't you helping with such and such? I don't have to stand and defend myself. Mm. I just need to stay where Jesus is. Mm. And it also gives me um, that insight that the, the closer I stay to Jesus, the more like Jesus I am in my mm. behavior. Mm. The farther away that I am, the less I am like mm-hmm. um, Christ in my behavior. And that Martha was in, in that place. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that um, I realized in this is that the actual place where Luke puts this story right before it is this huge thing of doing mm-hmm. with the Good Samaritan, immediately behind it is this, the teaching on prayer. And it's almost to me as if he's taken this story to show that it, it, it needs both. Mm-hmm. But you need to know the priority of how that all lays out. And in my own life, um, I'm at all about the doing list in my mm-hmm. prayer. And um, when I was in Liberia one time, I had people coming at me all day. Um, I felt like, because they knew I was from the United States, that I would have resources to help them um, financially or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like nobody cared about me they just cared about what they could get yeah. from me. And I went back to my um, room that night and threw down my backpack and just said, you know, I wish somebody would have cared to just find out about me and be with me and not want something out of me. And very much um, I heard God say, I know exactly how you feel. Mm. That's, the, that's what the end of every one of Jesus' days is like. Yeah. And I just... You know, I just, I got very convicted and it had completely changed my prayer life Mm. that I don't want to come to his presence always needing something Mm. from him when I just really need to be with him. Mm. Amen. Now, what she just shared is is a perfect example of why we come together as a community around the word of God. 
And, and we, have, we have way, I mean, God bless the, the, the super scholars and, the, and the, God bless those guys. But we come together as a community around the word, uh, word because you have experiences, I mean, your experience teaching kids that you have now used to integrate into your understanding of Scripture. I'll, I'll never have that. I've had experiences that you, know, that you haven't had, right? And we, we come together around the word, a listening community, and uh, I'll, have, I'll say, I have no idea what that means. And somebody will say, well, you know, some guy in my, my homeless Bible study will go, well, I know exactly what that means. And he's right. And I'll never see it. So, again, I mean, it's great. God bless experts. But, you know, it's, you see what I'm saying. You know, we come together as a body to understand the Word of God. And I think, you know, that's a perfect example. I've never seen, I never anticipated this idea between Mary and Martha that Mary should have gotten mad or would have wanted to get mad and defend herself. Yeah, and she doesn't do it, does she? But then Jesus steps her. He sees what's going on. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, there you go. Our relationship with Jesus is just real and personal. Very real and very personal. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Butch. You sound like you were talking on the microphone. <laughs> Butch has one of those kind of voices. We done? Uh, I, okay. I have a follow-up to your previous question, especially <clears throat> we were talking about the size of vocabulary between Hebrew mm-hmm. and Greek. Uh, Jesus, though, would have spoke Aramaic. Right. Which is Aramaic closer to? It's, he, it's, a, it's a variant of Hebrew. He thinks in Hebrew. Here's the other piece of the puzzle that's new for me. The, the writers of the Gospels, primarily, they write in Greek, but they think in Hebrew. And that, it, that, that comes up to some very interesting, I'm seeing, I saw that with Hesed. When John says grace and truth, he means Hesed va'emet. It's, it's a Hebrew phrase, it's a Hebraism, it's a Hebrew phrase. And unless you, you, know, you do your homework or you read someone who's done your homework for you to understand that. But John thinks in Hebrew. You, you think it's Greek, no, he thinks in Hebrew. Yeah, it's really interesting, yeah. One more? Yeah, let's let's clarify this one maybe in one more. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thinks in Greek. Oh, sorry. Well, if if anybody wrote in Greek, it'd be Luke. Yeah. This seems a little less spiritual, but that's good. Uh, I'm, I'm much better with that. I'm much sorry. better with those kind of questions. <laughs> but I feel inadequate in that sense, I guess. But uh, join the club. Kind of being a pointy-headed fundamentalist myself now that I understand what that means. Uh, <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the brotherhood. Do you see 944 as like a linchpin? That's where he says, let these words sink into your ears. Because that's the only time I believe, and I really need to check a little deeper, but I did a little bit of a search. 944? I, yes. Oh, I yeah. The, I know the NIV says, I think, listen carefully, mm-hmm. but uh, NASB... The King James Version, I don't know what the new King James Version does, mm-hmm. but it says, let these words sink into your ears. Uh, I think... Uh, well, let me say I this think, real quick. Okay, okay, okay. I'm, that's the second time, but it's just the second time he says, I mean, just a, like uh, maybe a, a chapter or so before, he gives the inaugural thing, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get killed. And this is the second one, but I, I think you're, I'm, I'm seeing what you're saying. I think that's right. I guess what I was thinking is just textually, that was the first introduction, at least in the Lucan sense, mm-hmm. that he uses Listen Jesus' words, let these words sink into your ears. Of course, the, uh, the, the content of that, 
he's going to teach for the rest of the time. But right. I, something I saw, and I believe you pointed out, was the first time he used Lord was after this chapter. Mm-hmm. Whereas before it was introducing as Jesus. It looks, it looks like to ah. me that Luke is establishing the authority. Mm-hmm. Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter admits it. Then he shows it mm-hmm. in the transfiguration. And then after that, he's Lord. Mm-hmm. No, he, I think that's good. I think I got really excited. And, uh, well, see, what are you doing? You're listening to the structure. Right. Yeah. Well, the very first time he says it is in 9.13, and it's right after Peter's confession. He strictly warned them not to tell anyone the Son of Man must suffer many things. That's the first time. But then the, then the next time is the one, the, the, the one you pointed out where, again, he says, I'm going to be betrayed, and, and uh, that, that kind of thing is going to happen. Listen carefully, guys. This is really important. I'm going to be betrayed and be crucified. And they're like, you know, they're chasing butterflies. and They do not get it. They do not get it. Uh, the first time is 9, right after confession, 9.22. Um, Son of man must suffer many things, be rejected, killed on the third day race again. That's the first time he says it. And again, it's, and, and I th- again, I think it's a, stru- like he was saying, it's a structural point. It, structure means something. And so after the confession, okay, I'm the Messiah. Okay, this is what Messiah means. Suffering, death, resurrection. And then, then just a few verses later, listen really carefully. I'm going to be, cru- you know, I'm going to be crucified. And, and it's like Bill Lane said, they hear crucified and they stop listening. Selective, selective hearing. Because no one, no one, absolutely no one, there is zero expectation of resurrection. Zero. No one's waiting outside the tomb. When they see the stone's been rolled away, what do they say? He's been raised from the dead like he said he would? No. Somebody stole the body. Zero expectation. That is so, you don't get resurrection until you get that. Nobody was expecting that he was going to be raised from the dead. Even though from chapter 9 to 19, he tells them over and over and over again it's going to happen. It's one of the really interesting things about uh, studying the, 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 the resurrection. And they see him and they don't recognize him. Yeah. Jerry? I know. You know, so how could they not have grasped the idea that he would be raised from the dead? Yeah, but how can we have been blessed and have seen as many miracles in our lives as we've seen and keep on doubting him? I just think the persistence of doubt, you know, is a big theme. Yeah, don't roll your eyes at them. 